Hello everybody, it's David, Merry Christmas, I hope you're having a wonderful festive season wherever you are, whether it's warm, whether it's cold, whether you're with people, whether you're by yourself, uh, I hope the holidays go well and you start 2024 with hope, with love and with lots of positive vibes because I think they're really important for the world going forward. I've just finished a semester in which I've completed nine lectures. Now professors are not normally meant to teach nine lectures, they're not really meant to do five or six, which is my normal workload, but it really shows how popular Korean studies is at the moment. There's been people coming from all over the world wanting to learn about Korea. One of my responsibilities is to try to give them an environment, uh, some ideas where they can learn more about Korea. And so what I just want to do in this uh, episode is just to go through some of the ideas that we've talked about in these Korean studies lectures. Some of them are theories. Um, I think they're powerful ideas that people either think they're right or wrong, but they provide a map in which we can try to understand the world. And some of the ones I'll give you are ones that really resonated with students um, and they took them away and applied them to their own lives and how and, and how they see things. So I thought I'd give you some of these ideas in this episode and try to apply them in a Korean context because that's what this podcast is generally about. Before I start, I, I just want to give a quick thank you to some people. I'm sure I'm going to miss uh, some names, but uh, there's been a lot of love and support uh, across social media from various platforms, whether it's Instagram, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, and beyond. So uh, just a very quick shout out to Philip Galman, Martin Sketchley, Britzman in Busan, Alexandra Klebrink, Cody Schumann in Ansan, uh, JWHan2086 on YouTube, Michael Duffy, The Aggressive Monkey, Matt Clement, Rubis, Silk Inc., Zyra, Mika, Maria Opria, um, Kay. I'm, I'm sure there's lots more, but I just had a quick look through various things and I saw all these messages and support. So just a thank you to those people. Uh, and a thank you to everybody else if you're listening to this. Let's start with some ideas, shall we? One of the first ideas that I want to give to you, and this was an idea that was introduced to me by Professor Paul Youngbin Kim. He was on the podcast. Uh, we talked about psychology, and uh, great shout out to him because he's been a, a fantastic friend uh, over the last year or so in which I've got to know him. We exchange emails regularly. He's started his own uh, podcast since coming on mine. So he, he's obviously got the bug. I've influenced some people to start doing their own. So uh, Paul Young Bing Kim, thank you for everything you've done. And if you haven't heard the episode with him, go and check it out. He introduced me to a gentleman called David Matsumoto. Now, David Matsumoto is a professor of psychology at San Francisco State University. And he wrote a 2007 paper called Culture, Context and Behavior. So it's a it's a fairly recent idea. And I, I think that's one of my jobs to try to stay up to date with ideas and give them to students. There's a lot of value in in Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and Plato and Aristotle and uh, Changzu and Lao Tzu. I read them, <laughs> but I also try to give students the new things. Now, Matsumoto's basic idea in this 2007 paper, and he says, I'll just quote him. He says, <clears throat> culture is a solution to the problem of how to survive, given the problems in the environment the physical and social needs that must be addressed, and the tools available. Just to break that down, culture is a solution to a problem. That's something that I've been using uh, a lot quite recently. 
Now, what does he mean by culture is a solution to a problem? Well, different environments give us different problems. They give us problems, but as humans, we all want to survive. That's this thing that we have inside us. And so uh, tropical climates give us this problem. Arid climates give us this problem. Um, rainforests, deserts. Uh, but then you go forward and, and, and like the flats and the fjords and uh, all the different areas. But also the modern metropolis, the modern city gives us also, it's a different environment, it gives us different problems. And so in order to survive in these different environments, we find ways to get food, we find ways to uh, communicate with each other, we find ways to dress, we find ways to uh, simply get through life. And what we produce then is culture. So culture arrives again as this solution to a problem. And it's a specific solution to a specific problem. That's what culture is. And so when people uh, would live in hanoks in South Korea, the traditional house, the hanok, they would live in these because it provided a great protection uh, to the environmental conditions here. They didn't live in igloos. They didn't live in tents. They didn't live uh, in other things, but they lived in hanoks predominantly. And why? Because they were good in the summer and they were good in winter. Now, people don't live in Hanoks anymore. They live in these great big apartment buildings that have gone up not only across Seoul, but across the entire country. Why don't people live in Hanoks anymore? The culture is changing. Um, people don't wear hanboks in Korea anymore. The traditional uh, way of dressing has changed. Now, if you go into Korea, you'll see hanboks at the palaces where, where foreigners put them on for free um, uh, to enter the palaces. Uh, but people wear hoodies now, people wear crop tops, people wear baggy jeans, people wear trainers. Culture is always changing. Culture is dynamic and culture arises as a solution to the problem. So if you're a student, if you're an office worker in South Korea, Seoul provides a specific problem to you. The problem is you've got to get on the subway, you've got to get to work, you've got to walk across there, you've got to go in the elevators, and quite simply, a hanbok is not the best solution to that problem. The best solution is the current uh, clothes that we wear. That's why Korean people have the long padding, uh, which is the source of much memes. It's not just about clothes. It's not just about houses, right? Uh, let's Let's break it back. Let's go to religions and ideologies, and then we'll come to more modern things. Confucianism. Confucianism is a word that we often associate with uh, Northeast Asia. Now, we can call Confucianism a solution to a problem. When Confucianism was first coming, if we go back to Confucius himself, Kong Zhe, um, he emerged sort of 2,000, 2,500 years ago um, in the Warring States period. China was in disarray. Uh, there was no unity, there was lots of feudal lords fighting against each other, and so there was this great need for order. There was a great need for the Chinese people to come together and establish a system and escape the warring states period, and that's why Confucianism is the way it is. It's a very conservative system of thought and ideology, a set of practices that says if you use the rectification of names that everybody should fulfill their role. Uh, the king should be the king, the ruler should be the ruler, the husband should be the husband, the subject should be the subject. If everybody just stays in their assigned place, then there will be harmony. Things go into chaos, things go into disorder 
when people start putting their own individual desires, their own individual personalities above the needs of the greater good. So with China in great disarray at the time, the Warring States period, Confucianism comes along as a solution to that problem. And the solution is, hey, everybody just stay in your position, stay in your roles, and there will be harmony. So we can see Confucianism in that way. Let's take Christianity. Let's take Islam. Uh, take Judaism. Imagine you're uh, walking through, uh, you know, this, the, the deserts of the Middle East 2000 years ago. Now, there'd be lots of problems in that environment. One of the problems might be that people are attacking and killing each other. One of the problems might be that people are um, having sex with their family members, which produces all genetic difficulties. Um, another problem might be that people are eating uh, the wrong foods and they're getting food poisoning and other things. Um, and another problem might be that they're, they're, they're taking revenge on others when, they're, when they feel wronged. Now, this isn't necessarily going to lead to a lot of survival. Christianity comes along as a solution to all of those things. It says, hey, stop killing other people. If you do that, that that's going to be a solution to all of this warring. It also comes along and says, okay, you're only allowed to marry one person. Like, stop, stop having sex with your family members or, or your cousins or things like this. Just have one. And then it says, don't eat these foods, just eat these. And so if we take Christianity, whether we, we will avoid the conversation about whether God is real or all things, take out the, the, the metaphysical aspects of it, but just look at what it asks people to do. These things would all be conducive to survival in that particular environment. And that's why it emerges and that's why it's successful. Sometimes I think it's important not to look at ideas as whether they're right or wrong, but whether they're useful. To look at things as whether they're right or wrong is not always the best case. When you look at the evolution of ideas, ideas often survive because they're useful. And when they're no longer useful, then they kind of fall out of fashion. So we can see um, things as deep and profound through Matsumoto's theory. We can see things as deep and profound as religions and ideologies as being a solution to a problem. Let's take something slightly more superficial uh, which would be ice americano now in korea they have this expression oljuga it's incredibly cold out here at the moment minus 7 minus 10 i was playing football last night and it was cold out there um, but despite the cold south koreans will still drink ice americano a lot and uh, it's amazing because 20 years ago when 18 19 years ago when i first came they weren't drinking coffee as much. It was all green tea and they had this sort of brown hazelnut coffee. But the coffee culture that's everywhere in Korea today, everyone's co drinking coffee and there's coffee shops on all street corners. But the coffee culture is not people sitting out in the street, sipping an espresso and lounging about while they discuss existentialism and Sartre. It, it's not that. Korean people are buying a big, large iced Americano in a plastic cup with a straw and getting it to go. That's this new culture that has emerged. And it's a culture because Matsumoto would call it a culture because the majority of people do it. Probably I should try to break this down, but he breaks it down into three things. If everybody does something, it's described as human nature. So everybody eats, everybody sleeps, um, everybody wants to reproduce. And so this is part of human nature. If only one person does something, if we go to the other end of this tripart spectrum, if only one person does something, that's more based on personality. So if you order a double shot 
espresso with a serving of uh, sweet potato latte in there and some vanilla syrup. That's a very unusual drink. But if one person does that, it's not a culture, it's more a personality. A culture is when the majority of people in a country adopt something. And that's why we can call it a culture, according to Matsumoto's framework. And the majority of people in South Korea drink coffee. And they drink these large ice Americanos. Now, it's emerged as a culture. Why? Because if we use this same framework, again, it's a solution to a problem. What this means is that Korean people are busy. And so they need the caffeine. They're working long hours. They're studying long hours. They're sleeping very little. This has all been uh, confirmed by other guests on the podcast. And so they need the caffeine. And so they get it. But they also value, uh, they value, value for money. <laughs> they really put a focus on value for money. They don't want to go out and spend seven, eight dollars on a coffee. They're going to these mega coffee and Pek uh, Tabang and Compost Coffee, these places where you can get very large um, ice Americanos for, for two, three thousand won. It's very cheap. The other thing is they're getting it in plastic cups. They're getting it to go. Why? Because pali pali, they're busy. They've got to get places. And so this large ice Americano in a plastic cup, which you'll see everywhere in South Korea, even in winter, which is the amazing thing. I, as I get old, I drink hot Americanos now because the, the ice Americanos make me too cold, quite simply. But it's, demer it's emerged because, quite simply, it's this solution to a problem of being busy, of being tired, of wanting value for money. And so this ice Americano is a perfect solution to that. I'll give one more example of this solution to a problem and see if this uh, makes sense to you, which is that, <coughs> excuse me, the low birth rate. Um, the low birth rate in South Korea, it, it's reported all over the world as Korea is going extinct. And I hear a lot of these things, which is, you know, fascinating to me because when I go to the school and pick up my kids and things like that, you, you, you see the mothers there, you see the young children. I'm around, uh, although I'm at university, uh, around my kids and around their friends and around their, their schools and their piano academies, I see lots of young children. And so... I'm not gripped by this existential fear that Korea is going to go extinct because I see lots of young people in the country. Nevertheless, fewer and fewer people are having children here. Why is that? The low birth rate is a problem. But Matsumoto would say, no, it's not. If we, He wouldn't say that. But if we use his framework, we can say the low birth rate is not a problem. It's a solution to a problem. We're looking at it completely the wrong way. Now let's go back to the 1970s where Korea had a really high birth rate. Families were having <clears throat> five, six kids and the government had to put out announcements saying, please stop having children. There are these posters, you can see them online where they're sort of saying two is enough, stop having kids because they didn't have enough rice, they didn't have enough food and they couldn't support large families anymore. So it's amazing how it's, it's changed in the last half century or so. In the past, people had large families. Why did they have large families? Is, is it because large families are inherently better than small families? Well, no. In Matsumoto's framework, a large family is a solution to a problem. The solution to the problem, the problems are if you live in an agricultural society, which many things were, you needed lots of people, family members, children to work the farm. There was a lot of work that needed to be done. There was also the problem of 
um, child mortality rates and, and longevity. Lots of children would not make it past an early age. That's why in Korea you sort of have the doljanchi, you have the 100-day celebration, the one-year celebration, because to make it that far was a cause for celebration because, sadly, many children didn't. And so large families were a solution to the problem. Now, the specific environment of the past posed that problem and the solution was large families. Now, the current environment gives us new problems. And the solution to the problem today, if you want to survive, well, you've got to get a job, you've got to have some money, you've got to have a house, you've got to look good, you've got to maintain your body, uh, you've got to keep all, all of these things going. And so the solution to that problem that modern life in Seoul provides, and, and it, it, we all want to survive, and to survive we have to go through these things, the solution is to give up kids. The solution is to not have children. Sometimes this is referred to as the samposede, uh, the three giving up generation. They give up sort of dating and, and marriage and uh, children because quite simply, people want to survive. And so the low birth rate is not the problem. Instead, it's the solution to the problem. And so I sometimes think that maybe all the people, they've, they've been spending billions trying to correct this, and I, I'm not sure they will. And I think, by the way, if you look at the uh, fertility rates of similar demographic populations uh, around the world, you'll find them also falling in when countries modernize. They're helped by immigration. They're helped by influx of new people, which South Korea is still trying to come to terms with. But this is a, a solution to a problem. So if we want to address it, we've got to look at the environment rather than the birth rate itself. It's the same thing with apartments. Apartments now are Korean culture. If you read a handbook, it will say, you know, the hanok is Korean culture, the hanbok is Korean culture. When you look outside, you see none of these things. You see apartments and hoodies. Why? Because they're the solution to this new problem. Um, you want to, was it 10 odd million people trying to live in Seoul? It's probably more. Um, they all want to live here. There's not much land. There's a lot of people. So what's the solution? Build upwards. The apartment has emerged as a solution to the problem. I, I've gone through a few examples of, uh, of this. You could also sort of look at K-pop. You could look at wearing masks. Basically, look at what a majority of people do in any country, Korea or otherwise, and then ask yourself, has that emerged as a solution to a problem? This is the framework that Matsumoto tries to provide. I think it's very appealing. I, I think it helps us see things quite differently because a, a lot of the time we have it twisted. What we think we are seeing is a problem, but it's not. It's a solution. And in other, in other, from another perspective, what we sometimes think of culture, it's not culture. That That's past. That's in the book. If you look very closely at what the majority of people are doing these days, culture moves very quickly. It's not like what it says in the textbooks or things like that. And I think that's where sometimes some of my articles have resonated quite well writing that weekly column because I'm looking at what the majority of people are doing in society, not necessarily what I'm doing, but I'm sort of putting my nose to the wind and sort of thinking, what are all these people doing? And can we see that as a culture, as a solution to a problem? Now, the last thing I'll say about Matsumoto's idea, and this is a little bit difficult, this is when you get sort of into this dialectical materialism, sort of get this Hegelian Marxist twist. 
I don't think Matsumoto has said it himself. I think this is my addition to his work. And what this is, is that inside every solution, there is a new problem waiting to emerge. So something is a solution to a problem and it solves that problem, but it's not a perfect solution. Inside that solution, there is a new problem that will emerge over time. So, for example, go back to birth rates. The, the large, uh, fa- large families, not enough food. They said, right, you've got to have fewer and fewer children. So the low birth rate has a solution to a problem. But inside that solution, you can see that over time, that solution will create a new problem. There will be far too few children. There won't be enough <clears throat> taxes being paid. There won't be enough labor force or we'll need to readjust society completely in terms of how we manage things. So it's a solution for a time, but over time it'll become a problem and that problem will require a new solution. That solution will uh, come along, but it will also become a problem over time. So it's like that uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis idea. And there you get that forward movement. Take isomericanos. Isomericanos have emerged as a solution to a problem they help people get around, they caffeinate them, it's very cheap, they can do it on the move. But it's also a problem. And it's a problem because the plastic, like we, we, we can't keep doing this, we can't keep buying two or three a day ourselves, every person, and then throwing them away. It's, it, it's really unsustainable in the long run. And there'll be, there'll need to be a new solution to this consumption of coffee. Maybe it will be caffeine pills. I don't know. We'll get it injected or we'll just think about coffee and caffeine will appear in our bloodstream. I'm, I'm not quite sure how this will work, but it's a solution right now, but it will become a problem over time. So this is David Matsumoto and his 2007 idea. I'd love to know what you think about it. I'd love to know if you can think of any other applicable examples or or maybe things where it doesn't quite work out. But when you think of culture, think of it as a solution to a problem and see if that works for you. My students tend to love it and they they come up with all of these these different things. The uh, the young Indonesian women, the Muslim women that wear their hijabs in my class, we, we can see the hijab is possibly a solution to a problem as well because come from hot places, that's why they dress like that a lot of the time. What we sort of see is this innate or embedded or this very deep, profound religious culture. Sometimes things as deep as religion are, are, are that as well. That's David Matsumoto. Uh, another person that I would like to introduce today, and one that a lot of my students like, this is the uh, Korean German philosopher Han Byung-chul, or Byung-chul Han, whichever way you like to look at it. He's written uh, a, a huge number of books. His books are generally very short. They're quite easy to read. Um, his big one is The Burnout Society, Piros Hawe, in which he talks about people suffering from perhaps ennui, suffering from perhaps this, this lack of motivation. And what I'll try to say about Han Byung-chul is a couple of his ideas here. Um, the first one is he, he's always comparing the past to the present. He's comparing these two things. And we have this idea, um, it it sort of goes on Neil Postman's work. Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a fascinating book. It was written back in the 1980s, I think, and it was about the emergence of television. Um, But it it really describes the modern world. You can read it today 
and it still makes so much sense. Now, Neil Postman takes the view that it wasn't George Orwell that we should be worried about. George Orwell uh, produced this, uh, his name became an adjective. How cool is that? This Orwellian society, this totalitarian, this big brother, this North Korea, this Stalinist state that's always watching and oppressing you psychologically, physically, uh, spiritually. We don't live in an Orwellian society. We sometimes get these sort of suggestions that we do. There's so much CCTV. But in places like South Korea, if you're in Western Europe, if you're in North America, wherever you are in the world, um, we don't live in Orwellian societies. Neil Postman compared the Orwellian society to the Audless Huxley society that he produces in A Brave New World, in which we are given everything that we want and it's the freedom it's the things that we love that will cause our downfall not the things that we hate so in the Orwellian society it's about the burning of books it's about the taking away of knowledge it's about the control of information you can see that in places like North Korea where they don't have access to the internet they don't have these things in South Korea or wherever we are we have every possible book on our phone, on our computer. We have it all right here, but we don't read them. You don't need to burn the books in a society like ours because nobody will read them anyway. And it's that that Han Byung-chol is picking up on, that sometimes it's the things that we love. Sometimes it's this, this freedom that can be very oppressive. It, it's kind of paradoxical, but freedom... Uh, causes us oppression, freedom causes us pain. It's really interesting to note that as Korea has become more democratic, more modernized, Korea has become more successful, that its suicide rate and mental health rates have also increased. And why is that? Why do people suffer more mental health problems? Why do we see uh, suicide rising as South Korea has got richer and more prosperous and more advanced and also more free, more free from dictators, more free from having to wake up every morning at 6, 7 a.m. and do your early morning exercises and be careful what you say and only watch state-sponsored TV. That's all gone. We don't live in that society anymore. Han Byung-chol sort of says that there's a difference. The past was, he describes, as a should society and Modern society is described as a can society. So in the past, there were people that told you what you should do. Your parents, for example, would tell you who you should marry. Your parents would tell you what you should uh, wear. Your parents would tell you where you should live. This came from your parents. And when you went to school, your teachers, your professors, your masters, they would tell you what you should study. They would tell you what the answers were. And then in terms of morality, priests and uh, vicars and monks and rabbis, they would tell you what you should think, what you should believe, what should be right and wrong. And the presidents would tell you what you should do in society. And so there was all of this should imposed on you. Now, this should was very impressive, but there was a, a, a specific source of where that should came from. And so when your parents sort of told you, no, you should do your homework and you can't go out and you're grounded for one week, you you were very angry, but there was a source for your anger. It was that person right there that was oppressing you. And you could sort of uh, release that stress, release that anger through, through art. You could punch a wall. You could go for a run. 
but there was there was some kind of valve that you could twist. I remember hearing a story, I think from might be from Matt van Volkenberg, that was saying that in the nineteen seventies, uh, when there was very little toilet paper, people used to use newspapers and things like that in the outhouses in South Korea. That President Park Chung Hee was on uh, a lot of the different pages because you know it was uh, a state uh, built to uh, promote him in certain ways. And so when people went to the toilet, they would sometimes say, well, I'm going to use this page today. And it was a page with the president's face on. And so they would literally go into the toilet and then and then wiping their private parts with with a photo of the president's face. And so there was a there was a way they could kind of release that frustration about living under uh, a very sort of oppressive leader that told them what they should do. And that it's not to say that oppression is good but having an outlet for that oppression. That was the should society of the past. Now we live in a can society, Han Byung-chul says. And so if, for example, um, a young child, a young adult goes to their parents or they come to me and they say, Professor, um, I'm going to graduate. Uh, I, I, I don't know what job to get. I don't know what field to go into. Now, it, you imagine this to be very progressive, but the professor or the parent might say, well, you can do whatever you want. You go to your parents and you say, what should I do, mum? Well, you can do whatever you want, darling. And the professor says, you can study anything you like. What do you want to do? And that, it feels very open. It feels very beautiful. It feels very progressive. It feels very modern. But sometimes people hear that and they go, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know. Can you tell me what I should do, please? Sometimes people... Uh, respond well to orders. They respond well. I remember when I spoke to uh, the three chaps on the about the military service, Inu, Andy, and Charlie. Uh, I, I think it was Inu specifically, but the other two kind of agreed with him. They liked not having to make decisions. This was the time you got up, and this was what you ate, and this is when you did this, and it was it was all very regulated, and it and it helped them deal with other things because they didn't have to make any other decisions in their life. It can be quite difficult to make decisions, but now we have to make decisions on everything. Some people, excuse me, <coughs> lots of talking, lots of cold air last night on the football pitch. Some people respond really well to freedom. Uh, some people shine. Uh, these are the high performers in society, uh, but not everybody's a high performer. Not everybody can survive in this freedom. Sometimes when you tell uh, people that they can do anything, they do nothing. It's it's even worse. They find themselves because um, this is like Zygmunt Bauman's idea of liquid modernity. In the past, there were solid structures to which you could hold on to. Um, all that is solid melts into the air, I think is the, the Marxist quote. But Zygmunt Bauman, the Polish sociologist, previous life was solid. Uh, there was a company, there was a marriage, there was a house. These things lasted a long time. But the current Modern society is liquid. Things are ephemeral. They move. They change. Genders are fluid. Relationships can be fleeting. Jobs are temporary. Contracts are zero hour. Um, in Insta stories are 24-hour disposable. WhatsApp messages disappear. Uh, the latest K-pop band or group lasts for three months and then they go away and a new one emerges. Things have become more liquid and in this society, some people find themselves with, with very little to hold on to, and they can't quite find anything. And, and 
and quite sadly, they, they find themselves drowning figuratively and, and, and quite literally in society because they've got nothing left to hold on to. And sometimes that that you can do anything, you can be anything is not only very oppressive to them, but it also raises the standards of what it's what is expected of people. There's an expression in Korea called katseng. I wrote a I co-wrote an article with about this with a, a student called Yewon. Have a look for it because it, it, it was really good. She put so much work into it from a young perspective. Now, katseng, the god life, that means. In this Kan society, it requires us to work even harder. So you might think about it these days, like maybe the husband's working, the wife's working, maybe they've got a part-time job as well as their main job, maybe the kid's doing a job as well. It's no longer enough just to have sort of a one-person family or even just to have one job. The requirements on everybody is going up and going up and going up because if you can do anything, if you can be anything, it, it's not enough just to be kind of a postman anymore. Like you should be aiming higher. And so this can is putting a, a huger requirement on people to work hard. And it, it feels like we are, in general, working harder than in the past. I know the, the young people get a lot of flack for not working, but like, they're working all the time, uh, is, is the way I see it. They're, they're always on. Uh, the, these mobile phones, the contacts, everything's coming at them physically. They're always on. Uh, and that's another thing that we should say, that the previous society was a very physical society. You had to... Uh, be working a lot with your body. Um, there was there was factory work and there was physical work and we were moving about, we were using our bodies. And so when we were tired, we could take a rest and we could spend the weekend sort of maybe resting our body. We could take a week off and recharge our physical energy. It's, but the current world is, a lot of the work we do is mental. A lot of the work we do is psychological. A lot of the work we do is cerebral. Um, I'm sure for many of us, we're not physically working anymore, but we're using our brains to work. And it's hard to turn off your brain. It's really hard to turn off your brain when you've got a mobile phone. It's really hard to turn off your brain in a country with uh, free Wi-Fi and, and, and 5G connections and this constant stimulation. That's really hard. And so we don't get much respite from the work. We don't get much respite from life anymore because it's uh, more mental work. I mean, how do you turn off? How do you turn off your own head? Uh, it's a very difficult thing to consider. Let me go back to this idea of the should society and the can in terms of that release valve in terms of oppression, um, because I said people previously in a should society, although it was oppressive, they knew where the oppression came from. And they, they were able to sort of stick their finger up at their parents and go, when obviously behind their back, not to them. But they could they knew who was oppressing them. But in modern society, it, like in terms of beauty standards, in terms of working hard, in terms of oh, I've got to do this, I've got to get a certification. Where does that oppression come from? There's nobody telling you you, you should do anything anymore. It comes kind of from within or it's a vibe in the air it's a vibe that you should work hard it's a vibe that you should try hard it's a vibe that you need to keep pushing onwards and how do you rebel against the vibe you you can't i mean where is it you you can't just scream into the void which i think a lot of what we see these days is happening 
because there's no actual source of these people's oppression other than a vibe or themselves. They're pushing themselves to say, I've got to keep going. I've got to move this. I've got to get these certificates. I've got to get this qualification. I've got to get this degree. I'm going to do this internship. I'm going to work here. I've got to do a, a year's traveling. And there is no oppression. And so there's no release for us anymore. And that lack of oppression is very difficult for people. Of course, as I said, we're not always talking about you in Hamdong Chol's work. He's a sociologist, so he's talking about society. He's not just talking about the high performers that survive. So if you say, well, I, I don't feel that, I, I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that many people do feel that. Um, we can see in statistics that there is uh, a lack of hope for some people. Ham Byung Cho has this other idea that he works on. Um, so he has the can society and the should society. Um, and the can being more oppressive because of its freedom, that great little paradoxical twist. He also talks about the entrepreneur of the self, that we have sort of become commodities. And this also ties in, this is how I teach mental health to my students, by the way. I should have mentioned that at the start. But when we sort of address mental health in Korea, because it's a huge topic and you get the you get the K-dramas and you, and you get the K-pop songs. And it's, it's become a real topic of uh, conversation here. To frame this, before we get into the specifics, I, I teach them Han byung Chol's ideas and see what they think about it. And a lot of them love him. A lot of them come out and they're like, wow, th this guy kind of gets it. Um, very few uh, anti-Han byung Chol. They might sort of say, oh, I'm not quite sure. But the majority of them uh, seem to like it. And I don't try to sort of promote him as right. I try to teach him as neutrally as I can. These are his ideas. This is what he says. I, and I try to do it fairly, but a lot of the people really seem to pick up on him. Now, Han byung Chal also talks about this idea of the entrepreneur of the self in that we have become a commodity. So let's take the past. In the past, um, to survive, we would, often, we would often make something and we would sell that thing and, and that's how we would get by. So some people, they might make uh, they might make books. Uh, other people might make wallets. People might make shirts. They might make hot dog. They might make kimchi. Uh, they might make hats. And they would make these things. They would go to the market and, the, and they would sell them. They would sell the food. They would sell the clothes. They would sell the accessories. Uh, they would sell these things. And maybe you would, you would make some wallets, let's say. And you would go to the market and put your wallets out there. But nobody was buying your wallets. And That'd be very sad because you need money. You've got to eat. You've got to do these things. What you could do in that in that stage is you could look at the wallets. You could do some study. You could have a look around. Well, maybe I'll change the color. Maybe I'll change the design. And maybe I'll change the how many pockets it has or places for cards. You could change the wallet and you could go back and you could try again. In the past, we made things and we sold them. Right? That, that was how society and the economy went by. But now Han byung Chol says we've sort of become the entrepreneur of the selves, that we ourselves are the commodity. And what that means is we sell ourselves to other people. We say to the company, I'm the commodity, buy me, give me money, give me this amount of money, and I'll work for you. And we're the commodity, and we try to make ourselves better. We try to do what Koreans call spec up. We try to get the resume or the, the CV looking good. We put our internships there. We put our qualifications there. We did some volunteer work. We published these papers. We worked for this company. We did all these things, and we're trying to make ourselves a better 
commodities so that people will buy us, so that companies will hire us, so that organizations will want us. And we do it on social media as well. We present ourselves and put up the stories, put up the tweets, put up all of the the, the posts. We design ourselves online so that people will like us, so that people will follow us. And I'm sure for some of us that we do get some likes, we do get some followers, we do get, we get followers, but not friends. Um, we do get some support. But imagine you're somebody that doesn't get any response. Like, imagine people don't hire you. Imagine people don't follow you. Imagine people don't like your things. In the past, you could change how you made the wallet, because the wallet was the commodity that was bought and sold. But in the modern society, if you are the commodity that is being bought and sold, how do you change yourself? That that kind of hits different. That cuts really deep. Right? You are the thing that is undesirable. That's a, that's a very bad thing to to hear about. And I, I think this all ties into this I the, the way that we would think it's the old people will say you have it so well today. You have it so good today. Sorry, all of these freedoms and and yet you complain. And I think we're not really uh, paying attention to the problems that this freedom can cause for some people. It, it, it's beautiful, but some people lack that regulation. Some people are suffocated uh, by freedom. Some people are um, left adrift when they're told they can do anything that they want. That's not always the best answer. It's not always the most progressive thing. And some people don't like being felt at, felt as a commodity. This is how sort of Han Byung-chol sees a lot of the modern world. And he sees that ennui and he's asking us to not to go back to oppression, but to to find different things in life, to find what might be described as the yobek, the negative space, to find uh, a bit of yoyu, uh, to find a bit of... Um, yoyu is a very difficult word to describe. I wrote an article about it and I've, I've forgotten how I described it. A, 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 a bit of availability. Uh, a bit of distance, a, a bit of freedom is the wrong word here, but a bit of space, a bit of potential, a bit of availableness rather than the uh, complete compression. Just before I go to the next idea, I would like to say uh, something about this question that I always ask my students, which is, is it worth it or was it worth it? Now, what this means is that I, I just described to you how South Korea has made incredible economic and technological and political uh, gains over the last uh, few decades. In the 1960s, Gangnam was mud. This place was an agricultural society. Nobody predicted that Korea would be where it is today. One of the world's sort of top 10 economies, a cultural powerhouse. You only have to go back to see, to see photos of extreme poverty in this country. But it made it. It genuinely made it. Now, there's lots of countries around the world that would like to have made it, but they didn't. I don't think making it is is always taken. We shouldn't take it for granted. Making it doesn't just happen on positive vibes. You can't just say, well, I hope we're rich too, and it will happen. A lot of my Indonesian students or students from Southeast Asia, they look at South Korea and go, I wish our country was a bit like that. I wish we had this. It's not something that comes, not all of them do, but some... It's not something that just happens. It's not something that comes naturally. So South Korea should be applauded for what it has achieved because in a, in a parallel universe or something, it's in a completely different place right now 
we wouldn't be talking about it. But it it did achieve it. Now, alongside that, you have the you know you have the mental health things. You have the you have the suicide rates. You have the the dark side, right? As people are apt to use that expression, you have the sort of plasticity and the lack of authenticity in in the K-pop. Might be also argued that K-pop is a solution to a problem, by the way, because Korea wants legitimacy in the eyes of the Western world. It wants to be recognised. It wants love. It wants to be known as the Korea rather than the North Korea. So K-pop uh, is just a solution to a problem, uh, and in that you can see the next problem arising: that it's becoming too English, becoming boring, uh, becoming devoid of anything Korean. When you've got Ed Sheeran or somebody writing your songs, it's what's K-pop about it? Anyway, is it worth it? Was it worth it? Korea has achieved so much. Um, and alongside that, there have been problems. I often use this quote from uh, RM Namjoon, the, the leader of BTS, when he was interviewed by a Spanish newspaper. Uh, and and they, they said to him, hey, you guys are depressed. You're working too hard. You should calm down. And he turned around to them and he he, he said, you guys just don't get it. You don't. Uh, Korea had nothing. We were poor. Well, you know, I think he mentions England. England and France were going around colonizing other countries and doing this. We had nothing and we had to get somewhere. And so we worked fucking hard. He, he swears in there, which I find really interesting. Um, and of course, to achieve all of what we've achieved so quickly, there's going to be side effects. But don't tell us to calm down because you don't get it. And I, I think that's a really interesting idea because he understands history. He knows what's going on. Korea didn't ask to be divided. Korea didn't ask to be colonized. It didn't ask for the imperialism and the Western powers to come in. It didn't ask for any of that. It's dealing with it. Um, was it worth it? Was it worth it? There's a great story by the, the writer Ursula K. Le Guin. And it's called The Ones Who Walk Away From Omelas. There's another BTS link here because I think they use it in one of their videos. Um, if you can remember which one, please tell me. Uh, now, Ursula K. Le Guin's short story, The Ones Who Walk Away From Omelas, it, it, it describes a perfect state, a state in which there's, there's music and there's dancing and there's celebrations and there's fe festivities. And, you know, it, it's kind of like heaven almost. It's a utopia. It's a, it's a place where everything works. It, it's great. And yet, underneath the city, in a small room, there is a young girl. And she's trapped sort of in a, in a cage or in a cell. And the cell's not high enough for her to stand up. And it's not wide enough for her to lie down. So she's permanently in this sort of crouched position. And she's old enough to remember being taken away from her parents, from her mother, and being Put in this place. Now she's there covered in her own filth and excrement. She's naked. And as long as this girl stays in there by herself in this cell where she can't stand, she can't lie down, crouched, naked, in her own filth, abandoned, as long as she stays in there, Omelas will survive and prosper. And is it worth it? Is it worth it? It's like the trolley problem when you have, you know, one person dying or five people. We have deontology. We have consequentialism. How do we make our moral decisions? Is it worth one person suffering for 
uh, five people to prosper? Is it worth one person suffering for 10 people, 10 million people to prosper? Is it worth it? That's the question that Ursula K. Le Guin asks in her short story, and that's why some people walk away from Omelas, which is this haunting image, very hard to come to terms with. Now, when you look at Korea, it's achieved so much, and there are also some bad sides, and we have to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Was it worth it? And a lot of people look at me and go, yeah, yeah, it was. And then some people look at me and go, well, I'm, well. and you can see this, uh, this uh, spark in their eye where they say maybe we should walk away from Amalas or something. It's an incredibly uh, difficult question to ask. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? I, I think for so many people it was. And then for some it wasn't. And then how do we do those numbers? Because it's it's okay to talk about uh, utopias and dystopias and all of these things, but real life is neither of those. Real life is right outside that door. And is it worth it? What do you think? Uh, George Orwell was a, a, a huge critic of of, of Stalin. I, I I sometimes talk about George Orwell in a couple of things, and, and this is related to is it worth it? I sometimes talk about Orwell in terms of why narrative moves us more than fact because George Orwell would write these political essays sort of decrying uh, the Soviet Union and Stalin and the gulags and and these things nobody really paid him any attention and then he wrote Animal Farm he wrote about some pigs and some horses and some talking animals and everyone went I get it now this makes so much sense people were moved more by fiction than they were by fact people were moved more by a story uh, than they were by the reality. And that's why sometimes, for example, you can have statistics and people can tell you what the, the third quarter percentage change was. And it, it won't move people. We're not moved by facts. We're not moved by statistics as much. There, there might be some people that are, but in general, most people, but we're moved by a story. We're moved by a story. And uh, that's so important that we, we don't always get stories these days. We don't get, uh, that's why so many people sort of love the Harry Potters and the Twilights and the Marvels. And I don't think people love the Marvels anymore, but it's why the Korean feminist movement maybe is defined by books like Kim Ji-young, Pal Shi Pinyan-seng, or the mental health. We think of extraordinary attorney you. We think of characters. We think of dramas. We get this Jean Baudrillard hyper-real versions of things that move us more than the facts themselves. I love that idea that we're moved by uh, fiction more than fact. Uh, there's, there's, some, there's some power or some wisdom in there. If you want to change somebody's mind, don't give them some data. Give them a story. Um, when a uh, Soviet Union, this is what I've heard, right? When it's, it, was it worth it? The ones who walk away from MLS. When a Soviet Union uh, diplomat ambassador was visiting uh, the UK, there was uh, like a meeting happening and uh, was talking about the progress the Soviet Union was making and George Orwell asks the the Soviet diplomat yes but what about the gulags but what about the oppression what about what Stalin is doing to the people uh, in uh, these areas of the region and the Soviet diplomat says well my friend to make an omelette, you need to break a few eggs. 
To which George Orwell then replied, Yes, but where is the omelette? Soviet Union had no omelette. It collapsed in on itself uh, when they signed themselves out of existence on Christmas Day in the 90s. Right? They said, this is, this is done. It doesn't work. There was no omelette. South Korea does have an omelette. Right? Whatever you want to describe it, this, South Korea has an omelette. It, it, was it worth it? There's the question of, was it worth it? Um, I, I just mentioned K-pop briefly, so I'll say something about Mark Fisher. I teach my students Mark Fisher. So from Han Byung-chol to Mark Fisher. Now, Han Byung-chol um, said that society is so obsessed with neophilia. We're always asking for the new. We're always trying to become something. It's not enough to be. We always have to become. And so we're always trying to become someone new we're trying to improve our resume trying to get something he was focused on this neophilia mark fisher was uh focused on the idea of nostalgia and so he has this opposite view mark fisher a uh, british social cultural critic he uh he died in 2017 um but i i find a lot of his work very interesting um and it seems to resonate with some students when they think about culture. Now, Mark Fisher's idea is uh, the slow cancellation of the future. The future is being cancelled. The future is going away from us. He started his book, uh, Capitalist Realism, with this line, which is sometimes attributed to Slavoj uh, Žižek. It's sometimes attributed to Frederick Jameson. Um, but Mark Fisher starts his book with it. It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Now, this is a really interesting idea because uh, my, if my students, they can imagine um, another global pandemic because they've lived through one. They can imagine uh, climate change and global warming destroying the world. They can imagine that. Uh, they can imagine nuclear bombs and all this war, they, they can imagine that. And they can imagine zombie outbreaks um, less likely, uh, but they can imagine those things because they've, they've seen the movies and the dramas. All of these things are possible futures for them. And then you ask them, can you imagine a world where you go into a coffee shop and you get a coffee and you don't have to pay for it? And I'm like, no, no, what are you talking about? It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. There is no alternative. When the Soviet Union uh, puts itself out of existence, right, it signs itself, it dissolves itself, um, it's kind of like the end of ideology. This is Daniel Bell's idea, that in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, uh, of Francis Fukuyama's idea, people would stay up in the night arguing about ideology. Which is the right way forward? Is, is it communism? Is it socialism? Is it capitalism? What's going on? Are we still having that argument? what what is the alternative to what we have right now and personally i don't think it's an argument between capitalism and social because these ideas are, are hundreds of years old <laughs> they were created by people that didn't inhabit this world I, I think neither of these things are they were the solution to a problem at a time let's go back to that idea i think capitalism maybe communism socialism to some extent they were solutions to a problem at the time are they the solution to the current problem? Probably not. They're old. They're, they're centuries old. They, they were created 
or devised when uh, we didn't have the life that we have today. Mark Fisher believes that the future is being cancelled, the slow cancellation of the future. And he draws this negative correlation between technology and culture. Technology is developing rapidly. Technology is developing at an exponential rate. And so the use of our smartphones and computers, they're getting more powerful. We're able to do more things. We're able to watch more. We're able to see more. We're able to record more. The camera quality, the size of the screens, the connectivity to things like Netflix. We can... It's amazing how quickly we've come considering sort of when I was at university, we had to walk to the library and read books rather than just be able to Google something from our pocket. Technology develops rapidly, but as technology develops, culture at the same time, but negatively, is slowing down. Culture is stopping. And so what we're experiencing is, for Mark Fisher, we're experiencing 20th century culture on 20 first century screens. We're getting repeats. We're getting another Spider-Man. We're getting another Batman. We're getting another Superman. We're getting another superhero. We're getting a Ghostbusters reboot. We're getting uh, Little Mermaid live action. We'll get another Aladdin. We're getting all of these repeats, but culture itself is stopping. Uh, think about the music industry. Mark Fisher was big on the music industry in that in the 20th century, Punk, rock, techno, hip-hop, what am I missing? Disco, jazz. These all emerged as genres of music. I'm older than hip-hop. There was a time when hip-hop didn't exist. Then hip-hop came into being. And now hip-hop is a mainstream culture all around the world. It's a global thing. There was a time when punk didn't exist and now punk has come into being and punk is mainstream. You find it on all people's Spotify's and playlists and there it is. It's, it's a genre, right? So we have these new cultures coming into being and these cultures bring with them attitudes and aesthetics and sounds and values and ways of being in the world. The question that comes with Mark Fisher is that if culture is stopped and the slow cancellation of the future is taking place, will we see a new genre of music in the 21st century, like a mainstream genre of music? Or will we still be listening to rock, techno, hip hop and those things? Will there be a new? There will, of course, be lots of small genres coming up here and there and sub genres and synth wave and electro wave and vapor wave and lo-fi and glitch harp and but will there be a new mainstream genre of music that emerges in the 20th century in 21st century like we had in the past because it used to happen it used to happen so much and uh, students will often say to me oh, no david it's because culture repeats itself it just goes around in circles and i try to tell them no it doesn't because there was a time when punk emerged as this new thing and it's like a thought experiment. For those of you who have seen Back to the Future, the movie, you'll know all about this. It's basically that. that um, if you got Chuck Berry's music from the 1950s and went back 30 years to the 1920s and you played it to people, a lot of them would look at you and go, what's that? What the hell is that? But it's loud. There was electric guitars. There was amplification. 
Chuck Berry was talking about his dingling and things like this. And the people of the, if you went back uh, to the 1920s, the people wouldn't get it. They wouldn't understand it. It was sonically, aesthetically different to what they were used to. Now, let's imagine you got punk. <clears throat> or let's imagine you got disco from the 1970s. Imagine you got disco from the 1970s and went back 30 years and you played it to people. They would hear that and go, what's that? I don't, that's, that's not music. That sounds like space. What is that? They, they wouldn't really understand what they were hearing. Take hip hop, take NWA, right? 80s NWA. Take their music and go back 30 years. Go back to the 1950s. It's the same time period every time. And play NWA to the people from the 1950s. And they would listen. To, they would fall off their chair. They would not understand it. You're allowed. That doesn't sound like music. Uh, that doesn't. That's incredibly. Wow. And, and that's the idea. And that would demonstrate that it's new. Because hip hop now is this thing. And, and people love it. But if you took it back 30 years, they wouldn't understand it. And, and, and that makes it new. You could do the same with techno. Right? You could take techno back 30 years and play it to people and, and they would hear that and go, that's is that, that's not music. It's like when you play music to your nan or something and you play, it's, it's, it's just noise. Imagine you got music today, 2023, and you took it back 30 years and you took it back to people in the 90s and you played it to them, would they fall off their chair? Mark Fisher says, no, they would not. They would completely get it. They would understand what they were hearing. Yeah. They might not have particularly heard that specific drill beat before. Or they might not have heard, you know, that specific trap syncopation. But they would understand the music. They they would get it. They would say, oh, it's, you know, it, it wouldn't dumbfound them. And that's why we get this idea that it's not new. That we're just going into these sort of Y2K vibes again. A lot of, if you look at some of the most popular groups like Dua Lipa, Future Nostalgia, if you're going to Korea with New Jeans. New Jeans fascinates me because not only are they doing the Y2K vibe, Y2K I just think it's 90s and 2000s, right? Not only are they doing that in fashion, a lot of their music sounds like 1990s uh, intelligent drum and bass. It's incredible when you listen to it. And you, you hear the Amen break or something. Um, I, it was, somebody uh, emailed me about that as well. Why do people look to the past? Well, when you have anxieties and uncertainties about the future, you look to the past and you, you find stability there. You find safety there because new things are risky. And that's why we're getting these revivals of all these old genres, all these old things, instead of creating something new, instead of creating new culture. We have this new technology and, and things feel new. We're told it's new. We're told that what we're experiencing, yeah, this is new stuff. But really, Mark Fisher says it's not. It's new technology, but it's not new culture. Now, in terms of the slow cancellation of the future, in the past, we had a vision of the future. We had a vision of the future and we built it. And so if you go to the 1950s, the 1960s, if you, I'm not a big Star Trek person or anything like that, or Doctor Who, I, I don't watch these things, I'm sorry, if you like them. Um, but when you saw those things, they had these like computers in their pocket that they would pull, uh, pull out and sort of communicate with people uh, in other places. And this was absolutely impossible at the time. Right. These wireless devices and they would video each other. 
we created that. We created that vision of the future. The idea is that in the past we had a vision of the future and then we created it and we're living in it. If you ask young people today, and I, I do this uh, every year, ask young people today, what does the future look like? And they'll be like, uh, I don't know. So somebody might say flying cars. And I, I say like, that that's that's not a new vision of the future. That's an old, uh, it's Blade Runner. It, it, it's Star Wars. Come on, there needs to be a new vision. Young young people today, we have drones, right? Drones are the flying cars. And drones can deliver your Amazon package or they can uh, bomb children in Gaza. That's what they do. Um, not very pleasant. But what does the future look like? Are we still just living in 80s retro vibes? Where's the new vision? Where's the new ideology? Where's the new things to replace capitalism and, and socialism in the 60s and the 70s? Maybe it's because the old people don't give young people a chance. Maybe uh, it's psychological. Maybe it's related to power and hegemony. For Mark Fisher, it was kind of related to capitalism because capitalism abandons the future and repetition of the past is driven by profit and safety. Because you know the next Marvel movie it, it's not it might not be great art it, it's not going to be an amazing piece of cinema but it'll make money but it will make money new coldplay record right will, will it be amazing art probably not will it make money yeah 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 and so we have these things that are driven by profit and safety because new things fail New things are subversive. When new things come along, they are, by their very nature, counterculture. They challenge the status quo. They push against the established order. And they try to do something that has not been done before. So when punk comes along, it's a middle finger uh, to the establishment. And then, you know, the established... It's really interesting when new genres come along. People decry them and call them evil or... They say it's corrupting the youth or it's against morality. So when rock and roll comes along, it's the music of the devil. Uh, and then rock eventually becomes an established genre. And when punk comes along, oh, it's, uh, you know, it's corrupting the youth and it's, it, it's terrible. And then punk becomes, you know, Green Day and Avril Lavigne and Blink-182 and like, nice. Yeah? Hip-hop, the same thing. When hip-hop comes along, everybody sort of worries about it. And there are these moral... It's, it's framed, it's really interesting that it's framed in moral worries about society. And what it is, is people trying to protect the status quo. But eventually they realise that people like this and it can be incorporated into the status quo and it can go mainstream. K-pop was the same. In 1992, in the early 90s, when Sotheji comes out, Sotheji and Boys was 1992 to 1996, he was banned from television. His lyrics were taken out of his songs. They said that he was doing all of this bad stuff. K-pop was also counterculture. It was subversive. When he uh, did this kind of, it's called his television debut. It's not the very first one, but he goes on this music performance, Sotheji, and they perform their first song, Nan Ario, and they get the lowest score of the night. The judges look at them and go, that's not music. What do you do? Maybe you're focusing on your dancing too much and you forgot to write lyrics and melody or something. But the, the critics pan him. And then 
spend 17 weeks at number one and K-pop, boom, there it is. It, it's, it's them. And so new things, when they come along, they're a middle finger. Uh, they challenge the status quo. And it's becoming harder and harder to do that. Will there be... Uh, and also new things fail. When, when sometimes new things come out, they they don't always achieve immediate success or they, they they become sort of this cult thing and then they become really popular 20 years later. What we're seeing is maybe the lack of new things challenging the status quo. The status quo has got so big that any attempt to challenge it just reinforces it. And I'll, give, I'll give you two examples here. One is Squid Game and one is Parasite, which is that they're both seen as critiques of capitalism they're both seen as highlighting the immense inequality that we have in our societies. And yet, they made so much money. Criticizing capitalism is one of the most profitable things that you can do in society. So even if you try to rally against it, it just makes it stronger. Now, this isn't an argument for the opposite of capitalism. It's not trying to say we should all be Marxists or socialists. It's just trying to reinforce the strength the capitalist realism which was fisher's argument the strength that capitalism holds that even if you criticize it it just strengthens it even more why does it strengthen it even more why does something like parasite or squid game there are many others but just to use some korean cultural context why does it just reinforce rather than bring about change there's this idea of catharsis it's kind of similar when Pam Young Chow talked about needing this release. We need something. Uh, we need an object of our oppression to be able to release. Now, in terms of catharsis, when we go and watch Parasite, when we watch Squid Game, it's performing our anti-capitalism for us. And so we we inherently know that, yeah, there's some inequality and there's, you know, there's a lot of homeless people over there and there's poor people over there and is it really fair that these people have billions of dollars and these people have none is it really fair that these people earn millions of dollars or one for for dancing and singing other people's songs and, and these teachers and these doctors and these nurses and these factory workers have nothing how is that we we inherently know that there's there's this unfairness and, and we feel it deep in our bones and then we go and watch Squid Game, we go and watch Parasite, we go and watch these things, and it resolves our feelings for us. It performs our anti-capitalism for us. And so we go and watch it, and then we come out of the cinema watching Parasite, and we say to our friend, that was good, yeah, wow, that's that, that money thing, yeah, that inequality, yeah, yeah. Shall we go to Starbucks? Sounds good. And so we go to Starbucks. And then we continue to consume with impunity we continue to uh, consume. And if we didn't, there's a there's an idea that if we didn't have these movies, it might be better for us because that that feeling of uh, inequality, those those feelings that got um, that suffocating feeling would not be resolved. And then we would be required to go out and take action. We would be required to go out and do something about it to solve those moments of inequality. But the content does it for us. It performs our anti-capitalism for us. And so and so we're stuck in this never-ending loop. Um, there's this quote from Antonio Gramsci, 
um, which is this. The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. And this is a really interesting thing because Gramsci did this in 1920, his prison notebooks. Um, but I, I think there's some interesting taking it because the old world is dying is like modern capitalism and democracy are, are they working they're working to some extent but you know when you get a choice of uh these candidates are we really putting forward the best candidates in our democracy or just the richest and most influential people is capitalism really working when we see this this growing inequality and these mega rich people and these mega poor people it's getting harder to just afford a house just to, to get your car running they did work in the time. This is not to say that they weren't useful at the time. They were. They were a solution to a problem at the time. But are, inside them was that problem. You know, I've, I've sort of come full circle here. Inside them was that problem. And so the old world is dying. But the new world is not here yet. We don't have the new genres. We don't have the new ideologies. We, we can't imagine what this new world will be. And so now is the time of monsters figurative monsters of course but we're left grasping and uh i wonder when and if it might change mark fisher saw saw no change coming he he was very uh he he was very pessimistic so much so to the extent that he took his own life because he didn't see uh, any hope uh, for mark fisher's hope uh, read one of his essays which was really recommended to me first by colin marshall one of my guests uh we talked about Korean civilization. Fascinating chap. Great to drink with. Uh, great on Twitter, by the way. Colin Marshall. Um, and exit the exiting the vampire castle. The second half of this Mark Fisher essay, the first half is about Jeremy Paxman and Russell Brand, and it's very British politics and of a time. But in the second half of that, he, he wrote something that got him sort of cancelled by the left. <laughs> Mark Fisher was of the left, but he got cancelled by the left because he, he he sort of rallied against identity. He, he rallied against sort of cancel culture. He rallied against everything that he was seeing and said, we need to go to something different. We, we need something. And uh, he people didn't take too kindly to his ideas. They were so doubling down on intersectionality and identity and these things that they a lot of them disavowed him and he found himself without a home. If we go to that Gramsci quote, the old world is dying, the new world struggles to be born, now is the time of monsters. We're left in this limbo where, you know, even if people say they're talking about progressive ideas, often they're not. They're just talking about old ideas, right? capitalism, socialism, uh, communism, democracy. These are all old, <laughs> really old ideas. And the music, it's old. Where's the new world? Where, where's this new one? Where's something politically, culturally, aesthetically, uh, economically that when you hear it you fall off your seat like when you take something back 30 years where's the we need somebody from the future 30 years or whenever this happens to come and tell us about what the new world would be and we'll look at it and go that's not possible and then it will be new because if we understand it it's not new that's a really important part of this um when it, would it be 30 years would it be 300 years will it be three years will it ever there's this quote from it's attributed to Lenin. I don't know if I'm allowed to quote Lenin, but I will. This is, <laughs> But it's a really nice idea. Um, and Lenin says something like this. There are decades 
where nothing happens, and they, there are years where centuries happen. That's the basic idea. There are, there, let's try it like this as well. There are centuries where nothing happens, and there are years where decades happen. You can put it like that as well. What it means is there are decades or centuries where nothing happens. You get this incredible long period of time when nothing actually really changes. Yes, people live and die, and, and presidents come and go, and kings and queens rise and fall, and nation states go through their things. And, and yes, things do happen. But in the grand scheme of things, nothing happens. And we write about them in history as these big blocks from from 500 AD to 700 AD, but then it changed in 700 AD. There was a change after 200 years. There are centuries when nothing happens, but then there are years where decades happen. There's there's a year where all of a sudden things explode and uh, the world is suddenly transformed. I, I think we saw that with maybe the COVID-19 pandemic, how everything we once knew was changed and we were working from home and we were putting on our shirt and tie, but wearing shorts and slippers underneath as we Zoomed and, uh, and and Skyped and did all of these things online and wore masks. And you remember when you would order food and you would have to spray it and wash it before you unwrapped it. And that was weird. That was weird. There might be, although we're in time of monsters, there might be some years coming where, where decades happen, where great change takes place. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what it would look like or what it will be, and the idea is you can't know what it will look like and what it will be. I generally uh, have hope for the future. There's lots more that I want to say, but I think I'm just going to uh, finish this one here because I've, I've lectures to go to and final exams and everything like that. and I need to keep on time. Um, maybe I'll, I'll do another one soon where, or I'll edit it in where I update some more theories and ideas and thinkers that I've been given to these young students and trying to give them maps uh, in which to understand the world, some theories, some ways of looking at things. And uh, I've been really, it, it, it's such a good job to be able to take these ideas that you read and, and go and give them to students, Korean students, international students, people from all around the world. Um, it'd be really great if you can see some of the photos of my classes. I'll try to put them online um, and just see how it's, it's like going into the United Nations or something, or like a Gap commercial. It's, it's so amazing to get a, a young Korean woman, put them next to sort of like a, a non-binary American and a hijab wearing Muslim and go, OK, let's talk about feminism, and democracy. And they just realize how different their worlds are. They're, they're wearing similar clothes sometimes. They're listening to similar music. They're eating similar food. And yet we're all prisoners of culture in some way. Uh one of the really nice questions that they're doing for their final exams is, do you choose your values or do your values choose you? Because if you give me the demographics of a student, like say where they're from, their age, their religion, their socioeconomic status, you can often have an idea of what they're going to believe in terms of various opinions. You won't get everyone right all the time, but you could probably be right quite a lot. You'd be more than half right, I think, if you knew that uh, their demographics, their age, their socioeconomic status, their, their any religious affiliations or things like that. You could probably then check what they might believe in terms of uh, individual rights or women's rights or sexuality or music taste or things like this. You'd be right more often than you would be wrong, I think. And so do we choose our values or do our values choose us? Are we a prisoner of culture that we're bound to like these things or believe these things according to who we are? And when you 
put people together and they realize that, oh, wow, you believe something completely different from me. And yet I like you and I respect you. And our beliefs are so fundamentally different because we come from different times, from different parts of the world, from different cultures, from different from different spaces. That's fascinating to see. It's fascinating to see. And what's really good about it is that they treat each other with with love you know they there's no fighting when you go online there's so much uh antagonism there's so much uh spite there's so much attack there's so much violence there's so much bad news there's so much despondency uh the news essentially is like here's 10 negative stories and now the weather there's very little hope online but uh when i go into these classes and i I, I drop these explosive ideas and theories on them and get them to try to discuss them. They they give me hope. The real real world gives me hope. Um, I'm not really sure that uh, the online world gives me hope. And so there's a lesson in there, I think. And it's also interesting how they treat each other with so much love. Not love in the sense of, uh, sort of love for your boyfriend or girlfriend, but this kind of humane love where you respect the humanity of each person, where you see the whites of each other's eyes and you try to, you recognize, because that's what's missing from online. You miss that uh, physical presence. You miss seeing that. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people that attack me online for, for my articles, for my work and things like that. And the people that do it most vociferously, the people that have never met me, They've never seen me in life, in real life. They've never... I'm just some idea in their head, I think, um, because I'm not trying to say I'm a nice guy or a great guy, but even people with who we might have different opinions on and, and different uh, disagreements on some things, they've met me in real life and they've shaken my hand and we've, we've broken bread and we've, we've sat at dinner, we've attended meetings and conferences and we've been at organizations together and we realize we have different opinions, but we, we also realize we're both human because we've seen the whites of each other's eyes and that's a very important thing. And seeing young people in these classes gives me hope. It gives me hope for the future. I don't know what the future will look like. Um, I, I, I hope to see some of it, but it will be their world, not ours. And I believe that they will, uh, they will find some solutions to the problem. They won't be perfect solutions, but they will be solutions nonetheless. Um, that's a good place to leave this. Uh, come sort of full circle through... David Matsumoto, uh, Han Byung-chol, Mark Fisher, a bit of Ursula Kayla Gwen, George Orwell, um, Audless Huxley, Neil Postman in there. Uh, some of these ideas that I've been going uh, across with students. There's more, but for now, thank you very much. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. And uh, see you all again soon, I think. Bye-bye.